Listener, beware. You gave us the scares. Hello, and welcome to Say Podcast and Die, the mini episode theories and queries. That's right. And it's a podcast where we two queers sit in our closet and we talk to you about goosebumps. And on the mini-sode, we talk to you about related things. Yeah. The larger goose verse outside of the books. Yeah, the goose verse that we all together inhabit. Yeah, our community. Yeah. Our queer community. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this week we are telling you about some of the messages we've gotten from goose punks all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we had, as you all know, I'm sure have listened to by now, our Canadian special guest on this week's main episode, Alan Doucette, the prop master for the Goosebumps TV series. Just the thing that's been really cool about doing this podcast is we have this like large international community that has formed. And so we're going to share some of the things, folks from the Netherlands and Russia and uh, somewhere in the U.S., I think, is These where here United States, Thomas yeah. is from. Yeah. And if you haven't listened to that main episode yet, what are you even doing with your life? That's a good question. Yeah. But listen to this one as long as you're at it. Yeah, it's, it's already on and you're listening to it. <laughs> so to start us off, uh, one of our Dutch fans, Levi, it is kind of an L Sigma VI, who on Instagram is masculine underscore intuition underscore readings and is a deck creator and cardomancer who has a very cool Instagram account I recommend following, wrote us to ask what our hot takes are on the Dutch Goosebumps covers. Alyssa, do you have hot takes on the Dutch Goosebumps covers? I really don't. Oh. Show me some. Show me some so I can do my hot takes. Here. Um, oh, here we go. Here we go. Oh, wow. It's very different. Like this? Interesting. You actually get pictures of children on these. Yeah, lots of humans in these, as opposed to the Tim Jacobus ones where you're, you know, at most seeing feet. Right. Here, for example, we're looking at Die Tokomst in Bild, the Say Cheese and Die cover. And I think the kids look a lot older. Mm-hmm. That's also true. They definitely don't look eight years old. And it's not so wacky. Well, they're supposed to be 12, but... You're right. <laughs> it doesn't look like it's marketed to eight-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. It looks like this is going to be a kind of teen issues book, because we have a girl in an oversized sweater taking a Polaroid of a boy sitting on some steps, also wearing a, you know, relaxed fit red shirt. And then the, the picture is him sort of on concrete with maybe some blood coming out of his mouth, but it doesn't immediately suggest supernatural. No, not at all. Yeah, it doesn't look like a wacky horror adventure. No, not at all. And I would say that's pretty consistent what I've seen with the Dutch covers. Now, would you like to learn? I would love to learn. Because many of what, much of what you just uh, observed is also what Levi said. So I said, you know, I think they're awesome. The aesthetic is interesting. And I asked if masculine intuitionist readings knew anything about the artist and also just general goosebumps memories to share. Mm -hmm. My goosebumps story, damn, takes me back. I went to a Christian school, so we didn't have goosebumps at school. Same. <laughs> But our music lessons were always in another school's building, and in that classroom, there were Goosebumps books on display. Now, mind you, I was seven, and those covers intrigued me straight away. I was still learning how to read, and seeing those books triggered something in me. That's exactly what Arlstein wanted, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, for people to be just excited about reading them. And there's also, like, the idea of recognizing something that you're attracted to. Like, yeah. there's also, like, a queerness narrative there, too, right? Absolutely. And also, as a side note, I want... I, I've been trying to convince Andy that we should do an episode that is scary stories from their Christian upbringing. So like maybe one of the junior left behind books. So, so we'll see. Only if you do scary stories from your Orange County upbringing. I mean, we didn't really have media around that. Well, but it was scary, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't have, yeah. Anyway. All right. Go okay. Ahead. Okay. 
I wanted to be able to read them, so I learned how to read, faster than the other kids. A couple months later, I turned eight, got my first Goosebumps book for my birthday. Sounds like the parents were cooler than the school. Um, <laughs> which was Horrorland, and the rest is history. Still a horror fan today. I think I may have some Dutch editions in the house. Turns out there were indeed Dutch editions in the house, and we'll be sharing with you, Goosepunks, some of the covers we've gotten permission from Levi to share. Some of the Dutch books have the same Tim Jacobus covers, but most have original artwork, and there are reasons for this. Oh, and as a side note, actually, originally the Goosebumps books were called Kippavel, but then they changed the name to Kippenvel, which is the pluralization, and so that made the publisher have to reprint the entire series, <laughs> which sucks. I just think is funny. And that actually, the font where they write Kippavel or Kippenvel is this cool red, shiny kind of foil. Yeah. Um, not unlike the Give Yourself Goosebumps covers. Mm-hmm. It looks almost like blood, like like metallic blood. Yeah. The Dutch publisher, I'm going to say Kuitman, K-L-U-I-T-M-A-N, is notorious for publishing more pulpy American titles for kids, like Goosebumps, but kind of disguising them as better books than they are. (laughs) So that's what we're kind of seeing with the cover. All Dutch Goosebumps releases are hardcover. The font size is bigger, so it looks like the book's longer, (laughs) so they look more credible because there's more pages. The downside to that, uh, Levi was saying, is that there's barely any paperbacks for kids. Expensive. Yeah, they were about $12 each at the time of release. The covers are credited as designed by Neil Swart Design, as well as the publisher's own design team. So Levi was guessing it's a collaborative effort. And the illustrators of the original Dutch covers was Herman Tulp. So that is really cool. And like I said, we got sent both pictures of the covers and also Levi turned the book sideways so you could see how much longer they are than, yeah. or appear to be than the American versions. Yeah. So uh, we'll post those images so y'all can see too. Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, did, did yeah. you have the hardback edition of yeah, those? Yeah. It, it had that kind of feel to it where it's, you know, bigger and it sort of dwarfs the original. And actually the images are similar too, which I hadn't thought about that before, but Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew are really also very pulpy, right? They're in mm-hmm. this detective tradition, but they're stylized to look more like serious literary books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for children who are going to learn good moral lessons. It all comes down to the illustration style, yeah. too, right? The illustration style looks more like something you'd see in a school reading book than you would see on a comic. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to talk about Thomas? Yeah. So bouncing back to the United States, we got an email from Thomas, who was inspired by our friend Nicole, aka Woman Enthusiast on Twitter, to write in with his Goosebumps experience. So his story begins in middle school, where he describes how in one class, the teacher had shelves with books like casual reading and stuff, and there happened to be some Goosebumps there. It's there that I read my first four. I even know which ones. Let's Get Invisible, Horror at Camp Jelly Jam, How to Kill a Monster, and Don't Go to Sleep. Well, there's a there's a group. I've not read the last two. No, me either, yeah. but Horror at Camp Jelly Jam is a... A rough introduction. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's it's a good one. Mm-hmm. It tells you what you're getting into. It's also a range, at least, you know, from the ones I know, like, Let's Get Invisible is this, like, oh, it's we're just in your house thing versus Camp Jelly Jam, where going out and encountering a cult. Yeah, very different kinds of horror. He says, fairly sure Invisible was first. I remember being really interested in it since I liked the invisibility stuff. The funny thing is, I was so into it that I didn't even like when the evil reflection stuff kicked in, even though now I th- realize it was the highlight. I was weird, I guess. It's funny, though, what, what you read as a kid versus now. Like, I loved Monster Blood too as a kid yeah. and i think it's just because it was about kids going off getting to do stuff on their own yeah now as an adult i'm like well, you can leave the house <laughs> like yeah. yeah i can leave the house yeah <laughs> fast forward to 2007 when cartoon network advertised they were airing the tv show i was immediately interested and ended up at the school library checking out the blob that ate everyone i was basically hooked from there and read most of the series from there and started collecting i'm curious how many 
Goosepunks got their start with Goosebumps around that 2007 time because it seems like we have an interesting age gap between people our age and people in their early 20s who came to it at these different moments. I wonder yeah. if it had to do with a republishing or re-showing the series at yeah. the moment. Yeah, and I wonder who came to it through the books versus who came to it through the TV series. Yeah. So they had other Stein stuff there, too. That's how I got Nightmare Room and later Fear Street and whatnot. I had to be around 12 at this point. In 2008, I got into internet reviews that ended up helping me get more into broadening my media horizons, and I got more critical. This is when Blogger Beware comes in. I'm sure you've heard of it. Nope. Only only through Thomas. Yeah. It's become pretty legendary in the Goosebumps community and the wiki, etc. Well, I've seen other people comment on Blogger Beware, too. Just we haven't read anything from it. Yeah. Let's see. 2006, I was very into reading other kinds of book blogs at this time. <laughs> you were? Yes. What? Like what? Like about like contemporary literature and stuff. Like it seemed like book blogging was becoming a thing at that point. Yeah. It's 2008. Yeah. It, it, he, he writes later that the blog was started in uh, 2006. Okay. Yeah. 2006... I was starting college. I wasn't reading anything. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it was a blog run by Troy Steele. Had basically snarky recaps of the books. And he was one of the earlier people to start doing it. Got pretty influential, especially with regular people not super interested in looking deep for the most part. He was an influence on me. Heck, it's what led me to start making my own blog in late 2010 and then my own Goosebumps reviews in 2012. But the thing is, at that time, is at the stage when you look at your favorite reviewers as gospel. It's true. Like at a certain point, you're like, oh, wait, I can disagree with these people too. Just because they have a blog doesn't mean they're right. Yeah, that's always like the learning process process, right? It's okay to like repeat someone else's idea when you've just come to understand it. And that's the starting place to being able to develop your own good ideas. Yeah, exactly. And Thomas says for a while, he was kind of parodying what, what he said. And that's, you know, that's finding your voice. And oh, and he says that to this day, there's some that I should like a little bit more. But since the idea got planted that say a book wasn't very good, I generally can't get past that. I don't blame it too much. This is on me. It's just how I was. That's how we all are. Yeah. And something that I sometimes rant about too, is this idea of, you know, my students come into my classroom thinking Shakespeare is good. That's why they're taking a Shakespeare class and I have to really push to be like well what's good about it do you actually think it's good or does someone just tell you it's good right and I think it's hard to go past that and similarly with stuff that we classify as like low art or pulpy I think that while people might have general agreement that say Shakespeare is better than Stephanie Meyer I doubt very many people could make a convincing empirical argument as to what makes one better than the other. Yeah, and it's interesting because we all come in with these received ideas. And it doesn't mean the received ideas are necessarily bad, but I had a similar conversation with my students last fall where we were talking about experimental literature and people were talking about how, oh, I'm interested in innovating and doing things that are new. And I said, why? And it really took people a while to like actually come up with answers because it's what part of the answer is we've mm -hmm. been told to value what's new and because what's we're different. we're a capitalist society. Exactly. And also, you know, those the artist we remember, right? Like, you don't remember Picasso because he was doing the same thing as other people at the time, although but, he technically was, but... That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> most of the time they were doing the same thing as other people. It's just the one person you remember because of other random, sometimes, reasons. Yeah, Brock and other people, his contemporaries kind of get shafted, but... Um, right. Yeah, but And anyway, I actually really like Brock. Yeah. And it was interesting then to sort of force them... I, I mean, I... Force them. Force them to sort of articulate their own ideas about why they actually value that, you know, if they value it. And so I think there's always value in thinking about, you know, what opinions do we have because we genuinely believe it and what opinions do we have because we heard someone else say it or it's popular. That's it's, part of why we wanted to do this. Yeah, exactly. It's also a great way to uh, make yourself even more self-doubting <laughs> than you already may be. You're welcome. 
Yeah, and Thomas also comments that a lot of other people took opinion cues from him as well. And he says, but boy, oh boy, we'll get to cover that when you get to Chicken Chicken, which I've also never read. Um, <laughs> yeah, not interested in throwing it under the bus too hard, given it's old and Troy has basically retired by now. Who knows what he feels now? And he says that, like, I look back on my old reviews in ways that are pretty cringy now. With every phase of life, right? Yeah. It's just like, ah, oh, I look back at what I did and it's like, ah! That's why I don't read things that I wrote. <laughs> so honestly, to this day, I'm weird with people's opinions on things like that. I can stand by whatever I feel no matter what, but for whatever reason, I can still be bugged by other reviews even when they do nothing wrong, although some clearly are unfair. It happens more with things I'm connected big time to, hence how this is relevant to Goosebumps. Yeah, this is why you and I are really different on this, but like going into a movie or a book I'm excited about, I don't want to read anything about it because I'm worried about my opinion being clouded by other people's and I want to go in fresh. Yeah, well, and I think uh, one thing I relate to and what Thomas is saying is something I mentioned on our episode upcoming, which is Beast from the East, which we've already recorded, but I mentioned on that one, something that really bothers me is when people just want to take something down to feel smart, because mm-hmm. I feel like it's really easy to find flaws in things, and it's not super productive, unless yeah. your main goal is to feel like you're better than someone else. Yeah. But what is productive to me is to find what's good in something, and talk about what makes it interesting, and that's a way of kind of contributing to creating something. So obviously I am more protective of things I care about, like say, defending goosebumps or Twilight. Mm-hmm. Whereas when it comes to something like David Foster Wallace, I'm like, take all the pot shots you will. He's <laughs> he's already got people behind him. I mean, he's dead. But <laughs> Oh, uh, who's a better example? No, it's fine. Brad Easton yeah. Ellis. Yeah. And that's not to say that we can't be or won't be critical, because obviously we do and we are. I don't know that we do really count, worked grammatically there, but you get my point. But but it's just that only pointing out flaws in something is at a certain point just, just like jerking off. Well, <laughs> and I think especially a lot of times what is being pointed out as a flaw isn't necessarily a flaw. Mm -hmm. And that's where I go back to the Shakespeare thing. So if you're saying, oh, you know, Stephanie Meyer uses analogies that don't make sense, but then you see Shakespeare doing the same thing and be like, oh, look at this complex analogy he uses. It doesn't, it's not intuitive at all. It doesn't really make sense. And it's like, that's, so, so it's not objectively a flaw. Mm -hmm. It all just depends. Yeah. So I think it's just an ethical and cool practice to appreciate what a creator has done and try to defend them. (laughs) Again, to some extent, like I'm not interested in, in just being a defender personally, but I think that trying to be generous in some way is helpful. Yeah, that, I guess that's what I mean. It's not so much defending them, unless it's against unjust attacks, but it's more, I'm looking at this thing someone put time into, so why not put time into it also? Mm-hmm. And not just time to build myself up. Right. He goes on to say, I really like the influence of reviewers and podcasters lately. There's nice variety in terms of how they view the series. They ain't always perfect, but it's cool to see. And they have just inflated my unhealthy obsession further. You're welcome. Yeah, happy to be part of that. And the feeling is mutual. Yeah. It's really nice to get responses from Goosepunks, getting excited about it and creating fan ideas and getting to respond to that. And so... That was his experience, and he wanted to sort of put that out there and share his along with the others that have been shared. And if you all want really good Goosebumps content, you all should follow Spongy445 on Twitter. And I believe Spongy also runs the Out of Context Goosebumps Tweets account. Oh, really? (laughs) Which is always good. Okay, finally, we've got a message from... M7 underscore life underscore on Instagram, who is a friend of the show in Russia. And M7 life says, hello, your interview, the one with Alan Doucette, is a godsend. I wish I understood English better. I really love Stein's work. Goosebumps is being published in Russia again, so I guess it's recently being reissued. Oh, cool. Yeah. M7 Life is part of the R.L. Stein Russian fan club and covers information for the club, writing posts about Fear Street and recently one about Alan Doucette and translating interesting materials into Russian whenever possible. M7 Life first encountered the Goosebumps series as a student, kind of got hooked there into a lot of American horror 
also including Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Stephen King, a lot of stuff that probably a lot of our goose punk followers also are into. I can also imagine that reading these in English would be a really good way to learn English because the language is so consistently at the same level. The words are, you know, it doesn't sort of go out of the way to use weird words. Yeah, I mean, Errol Stein has made a point of that saying Mm -hmm. he uses a pretty concentrated vocabulary. Okay, so a lot of people in Russia apparently love the Jacobus covers, but they also have covers by someone whose name is Dorman, D-O-R-M-A-N. M7 Life sent us some pictures of those and we'll share those as well. They're extremely cool. Just like with the Dutch editions, the Goosebumps books in Russian are also hardcover and... Yeah, respectability. (laughs) Some of the books actually haven't been published yet, so Night of the Living Dummy was published for the first time in 2019. Wow. And so was Girl That Cried Monster. Interesting. I know. And then also The Ghost Next Door. So a bunch of the classics are only recently out in Russian. Wow. I wonder why. I don't know. I think probably just copyright issues, Mm. you know, takes a while to... I don't know. I wonder if the publisher would, like, try to sell those rights for more because Mm -hmm, they're the more famous ones. I don't know. Yeah, that actually makes sense. Because that's similar to what Alan was saying about how when Netflix started showing the Goosebumps series, they withheld some of the more popular episodes. Mm -hmm. So here's the coolest thing from M7 Life's message, which is they sent some covers of some of these books. For some of them, for example, for Night of the Living Dummy, the image is the same as um, the reprint of the books. And the one for The Girl Who Cried Monster is the same as the original. But then a bunch of the ones that are posted here, there's The Ghost Next Door. I mean, I don't read Russian, but I think from the images, we've got Say Cheese and Die, The Haunted Mask, and then I have no idea what this is with a kind of beast coming out from behind a mirror. I'll show you, Alyssa. What do you think? In the top right? Let's Get Invisible, maybe? But what's that wolf thing? Like, it looks a little bit like How to Kill a Monster to me. I don't know. We should ask our Russian friend. Yeah, that's true. But here's the thing I was most excited about, which is also on a bunch of the Russian books, if you open the first page, kind of the inside flyleaf paste down, there's these black and white sketches that are truly horrifying. Like, there's an incredibly cool one for the girl who cried monster that shows the girl looking in the door. There's this monster with eyes on stalks surrounded (laughs) by thorns, kind of. It's almost like the monster has tentacles that are thorns. Here, I'll show you. Yeah, it looks amazing. Also, like, just what a fun experience to open up the book and see that. It's a drawing that really takes you in. And there's a few other ones. There's a wolf outside of a shack. Oh, I wonder if that one's supposed to be Werewolf of Fever Swamp then. Yeah, maybe. And there's a a great one. Oh, this one's so cool of Carly Beth about to touch the mask. And you can see the shopkeeper in the background looking through the door. Oh, that's fantastic. Just the perspective on Mm -hmm. these is really cool. So we'll share these because it's going to be more fun to see them than to hear me describe them. But these are super awesome. And we are very grateful to M7 Life for sharing. Yeah. Thank you so much. We love it when Goosebunks write in and tell us stuff or talk to us on Twitter or Instagram. And if you want to do that, you can send us an email at saypotanddie at gmail.com. Yeah, we're we we just we just want friends. Yeah. More of them. <laughs> so you can also obviously get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at saypodanddie, and we will be excited to respond and, you know, share any stories you want to send. That's right. And in in case the audio doesn't get cleaned up enough. We apologize that our upstairs neighbors were very active today. Yeah, they're doing dishes, I think. And opening doors a lot, slowly. Yeah, I know. It's really <laughs> weird. I have no explanation. One of the great enduring mysteries. Mm. Listeners beware. Send us more scares. Ooh. Ooh. Good boo. Good boo.